Many years ago, Stephen Covey, the well-known inspirational author and speaker, made a very famous statement. You've probably heard it before. It goes like this. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Now, he was speaking uh, about personal habits and how they relate to the business world and to success in the business world. But it's interesting, as you think about that statement, how much of that applies to the spiritual walk of a believer in Christ and how quickly and how often we Christians, we can get sidetracked by all kinds of peripheral issues and forget what the main thing is, forget that the main thing's even out there, forget to fix our eyes on that main thing. Now, even as we recognize this, I would call it the macro thing or the main thing, doesn't mean that there aren't micro steps or smaller steps along the way, along the path to get to that macro thing that aren't important. There are many things that are important. If you're familiar with college football, you know the name Coach Chip Kelly. He's, yeah, he's had incredible success at the University of Oregon and far less success at my alma mater, but that's for another day. But he's famous for having made a couple of really profound statements to his football teams. The first one you may have heard, it's called Win the Day. And his meaning in that is that every day is a battle. And depending upon how hard you work and how much discipline you, you put into that day, at the end of it, you can say, I, I won. I did the right things that made me a better person, a better football player. Secondly, he likes to say habits reflect the mission. Meaning whatever your mission is, if it's sports or something else, that you ought to pattern the habits of your life in such a way that they're leading somewhere, that they're taking you towards the fulfillment of a particular mission. So for Chip Kelly, it's about doing the little micro things that, that then lead to success in some bigger thing, a macro success. And I think there's wisdom in that. Now, think about all the ways that we as Christians fail at this. I've seen Christian men who have a, a great passion to succeed in, in work, in their career, because they want to provide well for their families. And that's a godly impulse. But in the process of that, I've seen them neglect their home life and ultimately fail. I've read of pastors who have this giant vision for their church, and they've built hugely successful ministries by all worldly standards, but then they succumb to pride and immorality. And they fail because they really didn't do the small things well. They didn't have their own spiritual life. I've heard about Christian women who express a desire to manage a godly household, but then they get swept into an affair, and Later on, they say, well, I just got bored with it all. And the reality is, is they failed to guard their heart. I've seen entire churches get dragged into squabbles over really small things that then blow up into really big things, not just church splits, but behind them, you see this, this trail of littered bodies who have been wounded and are now bitter and angry and unreconciled. I read a story. This is a true story about a church that was planning a Christmas program and the director of that program wanted to have this big Christmas tree prominently displayed on the stage. But there were some folks in the church who were also part of the planning team that, that had concerns. In their minds, the Christmas tree comes from a pagan origin. And so they expressed their feelings to the program director that it wasn't appropriate to put a big tree up there. And yet when the evening arrived, there it was, a beautiful 12-foot Christmas tree all lit up. Well, as people were coming in to enjoy the evening, an argument ensued 
between people on both, both sides of the tree issue. And believe it or not, at one point it escalated to where somebody who didn't want the tree there physically grabbed it, tried to drag it off the stage and out of the building. And of course, then the other people fought against that. This is all while people are coming in to enjoy the evening. And so it got physical right there in front of everybody. Merry Christmas, right? And then the saddest part, that the story about the tree incident at the local church got leaked to the media, and it ended up in the local newspaper. You talk about failing to keep the main thing the main thing. Yikes. When you look at the Bible, you see that the Pharisees were the masters of this, weren't they? They, they were so scrupulous about tithing all their little spices, and yet Jesus condemns them because they have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, and righteousness. The Apostle John tells us that the, the, the Jew, Jewish leaders who, who led Jesus to Pontius Pilate refused to go into the Roman praetorium because they wanted to remain ceremonially unclean or ceremonially clean so that they could then enjoy the Passover. So catch that. They wanted to remain clean religiously all the while they were conspiring to put an innocent man to death. Talk about missing the forest for the trees. So for us as believers, both the micro and the macro are important, making godly decisions each day in the little things, winning the day, so to speak, while keeping our eyes focused on the big thing. So with that said, grab your Bibles. If you haven't done so already, turn to Romans chapter 14. I see a lot of new faces here this morning, or newer faces, and so we've been in Romans for how long now? A while. And so you've, you've jumped into the middle of it, so welcome. Uh, we're in chapter 14, we're getting there. Before we just dive into this, we need to do a little recap on what we learned last week. If you weren't with us, I announced something very, very strange and crazy for Oak Hill. That we were going to do a whole chapter in the book of Romans in two Sundays. Two Sundays. Romans 14 and just two sermons. And the reason is this. This entire chapter, and actually part of 15 as well, really center on one primary theme. Now, it has multiple practical applications, but it's really about this one thing. And the issue is what? Disputable matters. That's important, but I'm not sure it's important enough to take like 12 weeks on it. So we're going to go two Sundays here in chapter 14. So rather than getting really slow and super technical, we're going to look at this from a broader perspective. This primary thing is disputable matters. What do I mean by that? Daily moral choices that we need to make as followers of God, but that aren't specifically addressed in Scripture. And so the question comes up, well, when these things happen, what are we supposed to do if we don't have specific instructions from the Lord? And in the case of the church in Rome, there were three things that were being debated. There was, first of all, the eating of, of meat. Should I eat this meat? Should I not eat this meat? The wine. Should I drink this wine or not? Should I abstain? And finally, what about these certain days, these feasts and these festivals? Some, to me, seem more sacred, more special to other people, and eh, not so much. And so they were debating these things, and unfortunately, in the process of that debate, in the confusion, the church had become very divided. This was Paul's biggest concern. This is why he's going to spend 35 verses talking about this subject, because he so badly wants to see the church come together as one. That is a part of the main thing, unity and love in the body of Christ. Now, what were these two camps? Well, Paul identifies one camp as weak. 
He uses that word, weak, implying that there's something lacking in their faith, something that needs to be strengthened. And this was a group that was made up primarily of Jewish converts to Christianity. We spoke last week about the context on this. You can understand this. These are people coming out of a Jewish background. For generations, their fathers had worshipped this one way, and now here they were trying to understand this whole new covenant concept. And so they brought with them this idea of kosher food and kosher drink and being careful not to be unclean and, and the particular Jewish holidays and, and holding those up is more important than other days. And Paul says this is the weak group. And then there's the other group, an implied strong group, and these would have been primarily Gentile believers and some very liberated Jews as well who brought no religious baggage into their walk with Christ. They felt free to participate in all kinds of activities according to the convictions that they held. Now, both sides, according to what we read here, were apparently judging the others, sort of like that tree thing. They were judging one another. The weak were accusing the strong of being too worldly. You guys don't care enough about the holiness of God. You're doing all these things, and they're unclean, and you're not concerned enough with being holy. The strong were accusing the weak of being too formal, too rigid, too legalistic in the way they viewed their faith. And Paul's main point in verses 1 to 12 was, okay, well, stop judging each other. Stop it. Both of you, both sides, stop judging. Stop having contempt for one another. Stop looking down at each other because his conviction is different than your conviction. That was the big point. Accept one another. Paul writes. Why? Because God has accepted people in both camps. So don't judge. He's the judge. You're not the judge. So don't try to sit in his chair. That was the big idea of verses 1 to 12. And perhaps maybe the most interesting thing we learned last Sunday, and this sort of blew my mind when it first jumped off the page to me, Paul's prescription for promoting love and unity in the body wasn't to recommend that both camps soften their convictions. Because that's what I would have done. I would have said, hey, both of you guys, just go easy. Soften your convictions on these things. Paul does the exact opposite. We're going to see why today. He goes the exact opposite. He says, each person, this is verse 5, each person should be fully convinced, thoroughly convinced in his own mind. Hmm. In other words, do whatever study and reflection is necessary for you to come to a firm stance on these disputable matters. A solid position. And be able to defend it. Come to this firm conviction and do it before God. And then let your brother do the same. And we'll see how it turns out. But whether he comes to this conviction and you come to that conviction, what matters most, the main thing is what? Love one another. Unity in the body. That's what Paul is getting after. Now, we talked about some of the current day disputable matters that we encounter in church life today, even here at Oak Hill. Here was my brief list. Maybe you were able to put some thought into this this week. What type of school should we put our kids in? Public, private, home, right? What kind of music is acceptable? Is there a style of music that is prohibited? What kind of music can we listen to? What kind of movies can we go to? Is there a rating that we have to avoid? What should we wear to church on Sunday for worship? Formal, informal, are shorts okay? There's our answer. It's good. What Bible translation should we use? Should it be super literal and formal, or should it be more dynamic? And should we observe a Christian Sabbath? Should we set aside the whole day, or are we free to do other things on Sunday 
other than, than worship and study? All important questions, I think. These are some of the important micro questions that we need to come to a conviction on, to be fully convinced about. And by the way, this week, two others came up. You guys are great. Uh, you guys sent me the emails and text. What about this? I'll give you two that really I thought were really good. What about tattoos? Oh, grumble, 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 grumble. Can a Christian get a tattoo? How, here's the second one. How about drums in church? Grant and Chris and Kyle. And, how about drums in church? So whatever your convictions are on these disputable matters, here was my warning from last Sunday. If you lean towards abstaining from most things, Two things for you. Make sure that your motivation for abstaining from those things isn't really rooted in personal pride. Like, beat my chest. I don't do those things. That would be sinful. And make sure you don't lay your convictions, your firm convictions, on other people who've come to a different conclusion. And if you lean towards the side of liberty, make sure you're not just living a worldly, fleshly life and then just excusing it away and saying, well, that's my freedom in Christ. Right? Be serious and careful about the choices you're making so that you don't abuse and presume upon the grace of God. Both of those are important. On both sides of those issues, whether you're in the weak or the strong camp, again, know that usurping God's position as judge over the other is sin. In the church, be gracious to each other. Remember, we are all in process, and it's God who has promised to complete His work, not your work, His work in every single one of his children. He's promised to do that. So leaving room for each other to grow and to mature, not expect everything to instantly change and instantly be transformed, but giving each other that time and the patience to grow in their faith. It's essential, guys, for love and unity to reign in the body of Christ. Amen? So you've had your Bibles open for a while. Let's actually get to reading the passage. Um, I'm going to spend almost all of our time in verses 13 and 14, because they really are the heart of this, of this section. So verse 13 starts this way. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, which means it's been happening, right? Let's stop judging each other. Now, this is the transitional statement between verses 1 to 12 and the rest of the chapter. Paul basically says, brothers, both of you, strong and weak, for the sake of love and unity in the church, let's stop this habit that we're in of looking down upon each other, of judging each other's convictions on non-essential things. And now Paul's going to turn, the rest of this chapter is specifically aimed at the strong group. So if you fancy yourself, hey, I'm part of that strong in the faith group, the group that loves liberty and freedom in Christ, the rest of this chapter is for you. Here's what he says to them. But rather determine or be resolved to do this one thing, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Verse 14, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks or considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So let's start with Paul's important statement there in verse 14. Nothing is unclean in itself. That's another way of saying what we read in our call to worship this morning and the, the passage we highlighted last Sunday from 1 Corinthians. All things are lawful for the believer, Paul says. Nothing is unclean. All things are lawful. Doesn't mean everything's profitable, but all things are lawful. So no food, no drink is inherently unclean. So go, enjoy. It's all acceptable for the one who receives it from God with a spirit of thankfulness. 
Again, that doesn't mean you should imbibe of it or indulge in it, but you can. Freedom reigns. And again, in 1 Corinthians 10, in our call to worship, Paul gave us the foundational reason why nothing is inherently unclean. He said, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. That's the core reason why no material thing, food or drink, is unclean, because it all comes from the sovereign hand of God. Now, can something that's clean become unclean? Yeah, more on that in a second, but yes, absolutely. But nothing is inherently unclean in itself. Make sense? And notice in verse 14, Paul says he's convinced of this in the Lord, right? In the Lord Jesus. Some scholars believe that what Paul's hinting at here is that he got a direct revelation from Christ on this subject. But I don't think that's even necessary to, to suggest because when Jesus was in the flesh on the earth, he spoke to this issue. Some of you guys remember Mark chapter 7. Whatever goes into a man from the outside cannot defile him. Cannot. Because it doesn't go where? Into his heart. It goes into his stomach, and Jesus says, kind of gross, it's eliminated. Okay? So food and drink comes into the stomach, not the heart, and then it's eliminated. That which proceeds out of the man, Jesus says, that is what defiles him. Thus he, Jesus, declared that all foods are clean, Mark says. It's an important thing. Later, while he's expanding the gospel mission to the Gentiles in the book of Acts, Jesus says to Peter in a vision, this is every steak lover's favorite verse in the Bible. Get up, Peter, and do what? Kill and eat. That's what I was waiting for. Well done, Mike. Every steak lover loves that. Peter, get up, kill, and eat. But Peter, being a faithful Jew... Scrupulous Jews, sort of like the, the guys in the Roman church here, he's like, ah, whoa, 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 hold, hold on a second. Remember, this is a transitional time in the book of Acts. Things are changing over, right? Peter's still learning. His conscience is being trained in this process. He says, by, me, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything unholy or unclean. And again, a voice, Jesus' voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. So, the dietary restrictions under the new covenant have been lifted. Praise the Lord, right? Now we receive from his hand all food and drink. We have the freedom to enjoy. But, but, and this is the important but, yes, you have the freedom to enjoy. Yes, you have the liberty to eat and drink with thankfulness. But none of us who follow Jesus live to ourselves. Such an important principle. We live all of life under this command to love our neighbor as ourself. We also live under the command to model our attitude in all things, as Jesus did. Who did what? Emptied himself. Emptied himself of his rights, his position, right? Emptied himself and became a bondservant to all. That's the model that we live under. In other words, we have all these rights and all these freedoms in Christ, but we're always prepared to give them up for the good of another. Really important principle. We give them up for the good of others. That's exactly what Jesus did for us when he emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant. So the next time that we demand our rights or we insist that everything go our way, may we have ears to hear and the maturity to remember what Christ has done for us and to be willing to give up our rights for others. So going back to the passage, we have the freedom to eat and drink because they're clean in God's sight, that there's always going to be brothers and sisters in our midst who don't feel the same way about it. 
who are wrestling in their conscience with whether they can eat or drink or participate in this or that or listen to that music or see that movie or whatever it might be. There's always going to be people in the church who are still in process, still wrestling with whether they should do that or not. In their mind, some things are still unclean. And if they indulged in it, they would be violating their conviction, their, their conscience, the position that they've taken. By the way, that's why Paul says, take a strong stand. Be fully convinced in your own mind so that when things come up, your conscience will be your guide that says, nope, that's not right for me. Take a strong stand. That's who Paul's describing here in verse 14, by the way. He says, to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. That's how something that's inherently unclean or inherently clean can become unclean. This person believes that eating that steak or drinking that glass of wine is wrong, and so it is for him. And the rest of us need to respect that and not judge that conviction that he has. That's a person whose conscience is still in the process of being trained. That's a, that's a person whose conscience is still not fully informed by the word of God. I, I said this last week, I'll say it again. Paul thinks the, the folks in the weak camp, they're on the wrong side of this theologically. They should be free in Christ. But he's saying, go slow, be patient with them. God's doing a work. But know that for sure. These are the weaker brothers. The one who has to abstain, who says, I, I don't feel comfortable in that. That's the weaker brother or the weaker sister. So what are we supposed to do when we meet these people in the body of Christ? We live life with them, and so what are we supposed to do? Well, naturally, we shame them, right? We shame them for their weakness. We say, hey, grow up and, and eat that steak. Come on. No. I mean, that's, that's the testimony of some churches, of some people in some churches. Yeah, we just shame them into doing what we think they ought to be doing. It's the exact opposite of what Paul's teaching here. As those in the strong camp, we remain patient. We remain gracious. We offer help. We exhort and we teach, and most of all, we love. And as our brothers and sisters are wrestling through their convictions on these matters, this is what Paul says. Now, as they're going through that process, determine this one thing for me, will you please? Resolve this one thing. Do not put an obstacle or a stumbling block in the way of their maturing in the faith, in the way of this process that God is taking them through to understand what a fully informed conscience looks like. Don't you trip them up, you who think you're strong. Don't just stop judging them. Don't trip them up because God's doing a work there. Now, how many times, I know a bunch of you could answer this question, how many times have you heard this verse completely mangled about causing your brother to stumble? It gets misunderstood, it gets misapplied all the time, so we need to make sure we understand what Paul's describing here and what he isn't. And again, I, just, I have to do this caveat one more time, this reminder. This whole discussion surrounds non-essential matters, disputable matters, where the Bible doesn't give us explicit commands. Paul's not talking about biblical sin. He's not talking about essential doctrines of the faith. Listen, if we have brothers and sisters in the church who are biblically sinning, I mean, clearly violating uh, clear commands in scripture, unrepentant, or if they are denying essential doctrines of the faith, we can't just go, oh, well, you know, that's okay. No, in those situations, we, if we truly love people, have to get in there. And in relationship, dig into that and say, hey, let, let me help you understand what the Bible actually says about that. Okay? Do we understand the distinction there? These are non-essential, disputable matters. Okay. 
Let me share with you the truest definition of what it means to cause your brother to stumble. It's doing something in front of a weaker brother that for you is a simple exercise of your freedom in Christ. For you, it's, it's simple. It's clear. It's obvious that your conscience says you're free to do that, but it's not something that he feels free to do. His conscience doesn't give him that freedom. And this is the key. When he sees you doing it, for whatever reason, he joins in with you. And by doing so, he violates his conscience. He sins. That's what Paul's talking about here. Now, why would somebody do that? That's a, it begs the question, right? Why would somebody intentionally say, okay, my conscience is here, but I'm going to go ahead and do this because I see Bob or Joe or whoever doing it? Well, perhaps it's just it's the fear of man or it's, it's peer pressure. Perhaps the weaker brother, he really admires that stronger brother, so he wants to join in with them because he craves approval from his friend or he wants to impress his friend. But in doing so, what he does, he takes his eyes off what he believes the, pleases the Lord, and he puts it where? Something that pleases this friend. And so it's sin. Takes his eyes off God, puts his eyes on man, and violates his own conscience. Now, who's responsible for that sin? This is an important question because it applies to other aspects of church life. Paul is not absolving the weaker brother from this decision. He has to own that choice to violate his conscience. He's not free of responsibility. What Paul's doing is saying to the the strong group, those of us who are mature, to live out that maturity by not leading the weaker brother into that temptation in the first place. So both parties bear responsibility. The mature one, don't, don't cause your brother to stumble, and the weaker one, don't violate your conscience. Both are important. Here's an illustration that I read that really helped me. Imagine a bridge for a second that, that doesn't have handrails. How many of you guys are afraid of heights? Okay. A bridge ahead of you going over a gorge, over a river, about 50, 70 feet, somewhere in there. No handrails. Okay, my hands get wet thinking about it, right? So if you fell off, probably death, maybe serious injury, but it's not good. Now, there are some people, crazy people out there that would say, I don't have any problem. I'll walk straight across that bridge. What's the big deal? I mean, I, I could walk across a, a sidewalk, so why can't I walk across a bridge? I, I have not afraid of heights. I have full confidence in my balance. I can do it. But there's many people who would say, uh-uh, not going to do that. And if they had to cross that bridge, you know how they do it? Really slowly and probably on their hands and knees crawling to get across that bridge. But eventually they would make it. If you just give them enough time and you let them go at their own pace, they'll make it across that bridge. And if they do that enough times, you know what they might learn? Hey, I can do this. I can get across that bridge. In fact, I might even at some point be able to walk quickly or even run across that bridge. Just give them time. So friends, if you're able to run across the bridge without fear, that's awesome. But be patient with those who aren't there yet. Give them time. Give them time. How cruel would it be if the more courageous brother walked up to you, you're scared to death of that bridge, and just grabbed you by the arm and yanked you and took you across that bridge? Can you imagine? I mean, for someone who's afraid of heights, I can't think of anything more terrifying than that. To be forced across that bridge by somebody who claims to be stronger and more courageous, I'm just going to pull you across there. That'd be cruel. That'd be awful. 
might actually lose my balance if that happened. I might panic and lose my balance. I might fall off that bridge and suffer serious injury. That's what Paul's warning about in a spiritual sense in this passage. So let's get practical. Let's, let's create some scenarios here. The, the fun part about Romans 14, it's full of potential scenarios. By the way, if you're coming to my Tuesday night C group where we're going to do sermon follow-up, we can talk about all the scenarios your mind can imagine. And we'll try to answer them. What if a brother has committed in his heart not to touch alcohol? I'm not going to drink. He has the freedom to drink, right? Nothing is inherently unclean. The limitation, of course, would be don't get drunk. But because of a past experience, maybe he says, you know what? That's not for me. That's my conviction. Maybe he's had a parent who abused alcohol. He's seen what it can do, the devastation it can wreak in a family. Maybe uh, he's prone to addictive behavior. And he says, you know what? It's It's just not safe for me. I don't feel like I should even touch alcohol. Now, so you have a friend who believes that, but that's not your conviction. And in fact, you have a hard time even understanding why he feels the way he he feels. But Paul says, don't judge him for that conviction that he's arrived at. And when you hang out with him or when you decide to go to dinner with him, don't lay a stumbling block in his path. Don't put him in a situation where he might violate his conscience in order to impress you or to, to be friends with you or to find common ground with you. Don't put him in that position. His conviction for now is fine. Accept him. Welcome him, Paul says. What if a sister in Christ believes that tattoos are worldly? That a Christian shouldn't mark up her body in that way? But then she has a good friend in the church, a really godly friend that she admires, and this godly friend calls her up one day and says, hey, me and a couple other girls, we're going to go get matching tattoos. Small, not real visible, simple things, but we're going to go get them. Why don't you join us? And this girl, who, of course, this weaker sister, she wants to fit in. She'd love to have something in common with this other girl that she admires. And suddenly, this conviction that she's been so solid in is in doubt. And her conscience is beginning to waver. What should she do? It's not easy sometimes to resist that type of temptation, is it? That stronger sister had a responsibility to slow down and ask her some important questions, didn't she? What's your conviction about tattoo? Before I even ask you, what's your conviction on this issue? So that she doesn't lay a stumbling stone in her sister's path. Now, if if your thought on this is, okay, well, you know what? Jesus says I have the right to to drink what I want. Jesus says that I I can do this or I can do that. So who are these people to stop me from living out my rights? It's exactly the attitude that Paul's trying to stamp out here exactly what he's trying to do. Out of love for that person, be willing to limit your freedom. Consider his or her conscience to be more important than the liberty that you have to order that drink or to get that tattoo. I'll tell you a really great story about this. The late Harry Ironside, who led Moody Bible Church for several decades, he used to tell this story of a friend named Mr. Ali, who was from India, and he was a converted Muslim. He was raised a Muslim. He had come to know Christ. And they were in the States, and they were at this church picnic together. And one day, this young lady walked out with a plate of sandwiches, and she was handing them out to the people. And when it came to Mr. Ali, he asked, well, what type of sandwich is it? And she said, it's, it's ham and cheese. And he said, no, thank you. 
he let it pass. And this young woman, best of intentions, didn't know the situation, sort of laughed at him and said, what's, what's the problem with, with ham? You're a Christian now. You have the freedom to eat this way. Here's how he graciously responded. He said, yes, my dear, I know that I'm at liberty to eat it, but I'm also at liberty to leave it alone. And then he explained, he says, I was brought up a strict Muslim, and my father, who's nearly 80 years old now, is still a Muslim, and every three years I go back to India to give him an account of our family business and to visit the folks at home. And always, he said, I know how I'm going to be greeted. Our friends will be inside, and my father will come up to me, and he will say, son, have those infidels taught you to eat the filthy hog meat yet? And I will say to him, No, Father, pork has never passed my lips. He said, then I can go in to my friends and have the opportunity to preach the gospel. Thank you for the offer of a sandwich, he said to this young lady, but if I took one, I could not preach Christ to my father the next time I go home. A converted Muslim who had all the freedoms in the world, who saw the main thing, saw the big picture, and in the, in the small matter, made a godly choice, an abstaining choice, so that he could preach the gospel. It's a great story. Now, having said all that, man, the thing about, as I was working on the sermon this week, every time I wrote up a scenario, I was like, oh, but what about this? Um, because this is, this is complicated, isn't it? So, know this also. And this is, I'm going to share this with you to guard against a very common occurrence in conservative Bible teaching churches where we overreact to this principle. Just because we as individual believers desire to protect the convictions of our weaker brothers and sisters, listen, that doesn't mean the entire body has to become a, quote, non-drinking church. Or the entire church has to be a no-tattoos church. Sure, we want to protect the consciences of our weaker brothers and sisters, but then that doesn't mean the entire church has to take on that conviction. We don't have to become a, we don't allow, we don't allow our members to go to movie theaters, church. Or, or we don't allow our ladies to wear a skirt above the knee, church. How many of you guys know some of those? Yeah, there's a lot of them. That's the path to legalism. That's when a church becomes known for adding all kinds of extra biblical laws that aren't in scripture to the so-called canon of the church. It's dangerous. This is exactly what Jesus condemned the Pharisees for, Right? Remember the Pharisees, they drew up all these extra traditions because, because they said, well, we don't want anybody ever to stumble and violate the law, so we'll build, they called it a, a hedge around the law. Here's what the law is. We'll build a bunch of rules around it, add traditions on top, and then justify it by saying, well, we didn't want anybody to stumble into sin. And Jesus condemns them for that, condemns them for it. Understand this is the balancing principle. An entire church is not limited by the conscience of the weakest believers in its midst. So here's what that means. It's a good thing for the body of believers to live out their freedom. That doesn't often get said in church. It's a good thing, especially for leaders, by the way, godly leaders who are able to live out their freedoms in a very healthy way in front of the body. Why? For the purpose of teaching and modeling what is true. It's never wrong to help the weaker brother think about his convictions, What's wrong is is when we cause that brother to act beyond his convictions in order to feel accepted. So yes, caution is in order, but we ought not ignore sound teaching 
on moral issues because of fear. So it's a tough balance, isn't it? Now, another side note. Let me share with you how Christians sometimes misuse this stumbling passage. Unfortunately, I've seen it used in a very manipulative way. Maybe you have as well. A weaker brother tries to guilt a stronger brother into adopting his conviction. Here's how this usually goes. A weaker brother, who, by the way, always thinks he's the stronger one because he's abstaining from things. Paul says he's the weaker one, but he feels, beat the chest, I abstain from all kinds of things. Look how godly I am. The weaker brother says or strongly implies to the stronger brother, hey, you shouldn't drink in front of me because if you do, you'll cause me to stumble. Manipulation. Because if you know this guy and you're like, this guy's never going to take a drink. I mean, this is his pride and joy. He's never going to take a drink. He has no intention of drinking just because I drink. So I'm not leading him into sin. This is an issue of offense. And that's an important distinction. This is purely an issue of offending. He doesn't like my conviction. He doesn't like where I've arrived. And he thinks that his conviction should be the same as my conviction. He's just offended because I have the freedom to have this drink. And of course, what he's really doing is what Paul said not to do in verses 1 to 12. He's judging the stronger brother for that conviction. He's violating what Paul has said. And then he's justifying this judging of a stronger brother under the banner of you're causing me to stumble. It's hogwash. That's a misappropriation of this particular verse. So what does a stronger believer do in that situation? Because you're going to find yourself in this place. You're the stronger brother. You feel the freedom to engage in these things. Your conscience is clean. And yet this person is throwing that at you. Well, this requires wisdom. And it's going to, it's going to, how you respond is going to vary depending upon who it is and the circumstances. Let me give you a couple of examples. It might be a situation, especially if it's a peer or somebody that you've, you've got a, a mentoring relationship where you stop and you confront that judgment and you instruct that person on his unbiblical stance related to convictions. You explain to him why you feel the freedom to have that drink. And by the way, you explain to him why it's okay that he feels that he shouldn't have that drink. But you teach and you mentor. You're not going to cause him to drink, but you're able to instruct him on what freedom in Christ really looks like. Then there's other situations where this person who is trying to lay this on you, you just decide... I'm not going to give offense here. And, and maybe it's because you wish to honor them. This is actually my testimony with, with my wife's parents, with Tanya's parents. When we first met, I discovered that Tanya, Tanya's folks were utterly opposed to all forms of alcohol ever. They were good fundamental Baptists. Alcohol shall not pass my lips. Now, I'm a frat guy from UCLA. That was not my conviction. <laughs> I'm just saying. No. I'll edit that out of the tape. Uh, No, I I was growing in my conviction about the use of alcohol, of course, but but my conscience felt free to, to go to dinner with them and order a beer. But you know what? After talking it over with Tanya, I just, I simply chose to pass, to lay down my rights and my freedoms in that because I wanted to honor my in laws. I, listen, I firmly disagreed with their stance on it. I thought they were being legalistic and judgmental, and yet I was like, you know what? I want to honor them. 
It's not worth me fighting over. I want peace and unity in the family. And so I just laid down my rights. I, turns out it was the right decision to make, and, 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 and our relationship grew, and, and, and there's, there's growth on both ends in that. And we have, Tanny's mom and I today have an amazing relationship. I wouldn't have been leading them to stumble into drinking, by the way. I knew that wasn't the issue. It just came down to, for me, the Philippians 2 principle, consider others more important than yourself. And these are choices we're all going to face in the Christian life, and they require wisdom, and sometimes they require asking a mentor or a disciple, or what do I, what do, I do in this situation? But understand what the stumbling principle actually is in Scripture and how some people sometimes will use it to manipulate. Make sense? Okay. That was my introduction. No. Uh, I'm going to quickly run through the rest of this passage really briefly um, and, and give some brief commentary on it. And then I want to close with, with just one more big thought because there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot here, isn't there? Verse 15, we'll keep going in the text. For if because of food your brother is hurt, okay, if he's grieved or distressed by what you eat in front of him, then you're no longer walking according to love. Paul comes back to the same theme he's been working on since the last chapter. Love trumps everything. Love for your brother is more important than your freedom, he says. He goes on, verse 15, Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Paul's trying to get perspective. Look at the perspective here. Look at it. Jesus loves your brother, that brother, so much that he gave up his infinite rights, infinite rights to take on flesh, to suffer, bleed, and die for your brother, so can you not give up a ham sandwich or a drink for him? Perspective, right? Verse 16. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing, that's the freedom in Christ that you enjoy, don't let that freedom be spoken of as evil, he writes. Don't let God's gift of freedom to you be slandered. The Greek word is blasphemeo. So you know exactly what he's implying here. Don't let your freedom be blasphemed by the way that you respond. By putting a brother in spiritual danger due to a lack of care or concern, we actually blaspheme his gift of freedom in Christ. That's very strong language that he's using here. Don't take it lightly. Skip down to verse 19. I'm going to come back to 17 and 18 at the end. Verse 19 says, So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Right? There's one of the main things, right? I actually quoted this last Sunday. It's a great one-sentence description of the responsibility that those in the strong group bear. To be intentional about... Pursuing things don't happen by accident, right? We pursue them, intentionally go after them. The peace and the building up of one another. And that's the church, it's the individuals and the church as a whole. Verse 20. Do not tear down, catch the play on words here. Paul just talked about building up and now he talks about tearing down, Right? Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. Listen, God is at work building his church. And that church relies upon love and unity. Don't tear it down over food. You catch his, his drift here? The big thing is that God is working to build his church, and it requires unity and love. It requires grace for one another. Don't tear it down over something as silly as a ham sandwich or a glass of wine or a tattoo don't do it. All things are indeed are clean, but they're evil or wrong for the man who eats and gives offense. Okay, this is interesting. This is a warning for you strong folks. 
If you feel you're in the strong group, look carefully at that. If you pursue your rights and your freedom and disregard your weaker brother, that disputable matter that was once clean for you and he stumbles, it causes it to be unclean for you. It was unclean for him and now it's unclean for you because you caused him to stumble and fall. Every Christian liberty is clean for the strong in faith, but the moment my good causes evil in my brother, it becomes evil for me too. Ouch. You think Paul's serious about this? Yeah. Therefore, verse 21 repeats, it's good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Be fully convinced, have your conviction before God Almighty. Happy or blessed is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. So if your freedom is right before God, if you're not just following the crowd, but you've done the research necessary to come to this place of conviction, you've, you've looked at scripture, you've reflected carefully, you've talked to a mentor or a discipler, you've, you've looked for extra wisdom, and you land in this place in your conviction, then your conscience will continue to be clean. You won't feel guilty, you won't feel troubled about it, because you've done the work to come to a fully formed conviction. That's what Paul wants you to do. And what comes from that? A state of happiness, a state of blessedness. But again, the warning, if you really haven't settled a conviction without proper consideration, instead you're acting out of a desire, well, I'm just going to indulge myself and call it freedom in Christ. If you haven't done the hard work and really studied to come to a place of firm conviction on something, be warned by this passage. Be warned. Your conscience will not remain clean. You'll know in your mind, in your heart, and your soul that you're sinning, and that's Paul's argument here in this last verse, verse 23. If you eat or drink from doubt instead of faith, what does he say? You're sinning against God, for whatever is not from faith is, is sin. It's a complicated argument he's making here, but the practical applications are really important. Okay, I want to come back to verse 17. Look at verse 17. We're going to end with this, I promise. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So I started by talking about the main thing. And here we see Paul telling us what the main thing is. It's not eating and drinking. It's not movies and music and tattoos and all these choices that we make. That's not the main thing. The main thing is the kingdom of God. The main thing is the kingdom of God. Right? The divine kingly authority that God has over all of his creation. The main thing is, is, friends, which kingdom are you in this morning? You're in one of two. Paul says you're in the domain of darkness or the kingdom of God's beloved son. Those are the only two choices. The kingdom of God is what it's all about. And of course, the gospel is the good news that God sent his one and only son to bear the punishment for sin that you deserve. And if you trust in him by faith alone, he imputes his righteousness to you. That's how you get transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God. From the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. His righteousness imputed to you. Guys, that's the macro thing. That's, that's the big thing. 
that Paul wants to talk about here. Again, the micro things are not inconsequential. The, The little choices that we make every day, especially how we relate to our weaker and stronger brothers, those things do matter, but this is the big thing. Love and unity, the building of the church, and the advancement of God's kingdom. For the unbeliever, what does daily life look like for the unbeliever? Every choice is to fill his stomach and to satisfy his desires. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's not us. We have a different perspective on the world. For us, we focus on what it means to be a part of God's kingdom and to do so right now. Look what it says here. Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Here in Romans 14, Paul intends for us to see those those three things which we read about all over the New Testament. He wants us to see those in relation to others in the body of Christ. Because we have righteousness and peace and joy from God, now we extend that to one another. Righteousness and peace and joy from God becomes the practice of righteousness, peace, and joy in the body of Christ. Micro and macro. Win the day, friends, in the little choices that you make. Let love of neighbor rule your heart. Don't cause your weaker brother to stumble. Be willing to do for him what your Savior has done for you, to lay down your rights and to give up your freedoms for his sake. And may we here at Oak Hill, in that process of loving each other well, may we continue to advance the kingdom of God together. Amen? Let's pray.